Good morning, everybody. Happy uh, post-Thanksgiving Lord's Day. And uh, always a pleasure and an excitement and a blessing to, to be with everybody, uh, to bring the Word of God, and uh, especially coming after Thanksgiving, such a time to, to stop and reflect and think about the things that we're thankful for. And I was thinking this Thanksgiving, as I was scrolling through, you know, Facebook and Instagram, and you, you've got to like everyone's pictures of their food and their family and all their time together, uh, I, it made me realize how thankful I am for social media because it gives you that kind of insight into uh, the, the lives of the people that you love. And I don't know how you feel about social media, and I know there are a lot of pastors that don't use it, but personally, I love it. I don't use all of it. Uh, but there are some that I use, uh, but I really love it because it gives me the opportunity to study culture more than, uh, than without it. Uh, it. It gives you glimpses and insights into the lives, into the hearts of people. It gives you insight into the things that people love and care about, the things, in some regard, the things that people worship even, and, uh, and especially the things that people are placing their hope in. You always see the people that are bragging about the next big thing that they're going to do. They're bragging about the, the next huge purchase that they're making or they're building a house. And, and I don't know about you, but there's some, some of those people that you're just like, oh, just turn it down a few notches because I'm tired of hearing about everything that you're doing. Uh, but but those are the people that are chasing after likes. They constantly want the approval. You know, they just want those thumbs up on their posts and their pictures and everything or there's the people that uh, I, I don't know much about their family, but I know everything about like the five teams that they pull for, whatever sports ball it may be. It could be baseball or football or whatever, but I know more about their passionate pursuit of their teams than I know anything else about their lives because that's all they share. There's the people that share the pictures of their, their families and their pets and sometimes even their food because they don't have either family or pets. And so they share pictures of their food. Or then there's the people that just constantly share selfies because they're sharing the pictures of the things that they're most passionate about themselves. Um, I'm not saying selfies are wrong, but if that's all you're sharing, that, there's a little bit of insight there. But my favorite, and you see this every year, especially as like elections start drawing closer, there are the people that always say, well, if you are going to vote for so-and-so, just unfriend me now. You know, and, and I don't know if you've seen those people, but every, every time they make me laugh because their hope is so intertwined in a political system that they can't even fathom of having a relationship with someone that disagrees with them. And so if you do not vote the same way that I do, just unfriend me now. I'm done with you. And so there are these little glimpses that social media gives you. It's like a flashlight shining on your hopes. It's, a, it's, it's kind of looking at yourself through a mirror and reflecting the things that you hold most precious and most dear. And then we get to James's letter, and it's a mirror to our hearts. It's reflecting back the things that we value and the things that we place our hopes in. Remember, if you've been here for a while, or if you've listened online, or if this is your first time, James is writing this letter to a group of Christians that uh, he, he calls it the dispersion, that uh, after, uh, after Christ has uh, ascended into heaven, that there has been a huge persecution on the Christian church, that 
that people are being persecuted for following Christ, that their lives are in danger. And so for, for fear of their lives, they, they fled, they ran. And so he's writing to these believers to give them hope and to remind them of faithfulness and persecution. But he holds up this mirror and he says, this is what the, the faithful heart of a Christian is supposed to look like. What does yours look like? That's what this letter is doing. And we get to chapter 5, and all of a sudden there's a twist. Because if you've read through James up until now, you've noticed it's been much more familial, more affectionate. He keeps referring to the believers as brothers. Like there are these terms of affection and, and closeness and intimacy. And all of a sudden, it switches and it's intense. There's this passionate warning against the dangers of wealth. Uh, in fact, uh, he, he's exposing what these people are, are truly placing their, their hope in. And if you could boil down this, this chunk of, of the letter right here, I would argue that, that James is saying that the hope of the Christian should be in Christ alone. And I know that sounds extremely oversimplified because isn't that why we come together for, for Christian worship, that to place our hope in Jesus Christ? But there's so much under our control and outside of our control that we don't give to the glory of Christ. We don't submit to the authority of God. And James is saying that there are, he's issuing warnings and reminders of the dangers of placing hope in things outside of Christ. Because it's easy for you and I to place our hope in other things that we can actually see and feel and touch. In this passage, I would say, asks three questions to engage your heart and ask, what are you placing your hope in? The first, in verses 1 through 6, is asking, what do you do with the resources under your control? The things that are underneath you, what are you doing with your resources? In verses 7 through 11, it's asking, what do you do with the reality outside of your control? The things that you have no control over whatsoever, how do you, how do you deal with that, with the reality of what's going on? And lastly, in verse 12, what do you do with the reactions under your control? Before we go any further, let's pray and ask the, the Lord to bless this time together. Heavenly Father, we pray, um, we come before you this morning uh, giving thanks, thankful not just for this season, not, thankful not just um, uh, for, uh, for memories of Thanksgiving past and all of that, but God, we, we thank you that we have the freedom and the, the joy of coming together to worship you, to give thanks for what you have done. And so as we sit here this morning, uh, receiving your word. God, I pray that you would pour your spirit into this place, that you would speak through me, that this would not just be uh, my ruminations, this would not be uh, my, my collected thoughts, but God, use your spirit to speak through a broken man like me to bring your gospel truth and your eternal life. I pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Now, like I said, up until now, James has been very familial and very passionate using language like brothers and, and these family terms of, of caring for these, these Christians that have fled for their lives. But all of a sudden it switches and he starts to sound like the Old Testament prophets. 
uh, the, there's no longer, uh, the, the opening of chapter 5 doesn't have that same sense of close-knit relation, but instead he's issuing warnings and woes, uh, warnings and judgments even. And there are some authors that believe that at this point, James is taking a, a switch and he's directly addressing non-believers, but I would have to actually disagree with that. Because the entire letter so far, James is specifically written to a Christian audience. And I believe that James is addressing the Christian church in such a way that he's saying, if you are behaving in this way, I cannot even consider you a brother in Christ. You are not a believer if, these, if this passage describes you and your heart and your actions. And so I would actually have to disagree with some authors on that. And I, I don't care what they think of me. But, the, the, but Scripture calls the, uh, the, the, not just the, the, the Christian, but for all followers of God, for Christians and, and Jewish uh, uh, people alike, there's this theme of caring for the poor, of, of caring for, for the downtrodden, those that can't take care of themselves, to care for the orphans and the widows. And obviously this is intensified through the person of Christ. But James is saying that if you do not behave in that way, I can't even call you a Christian. And so he's raising the question of what are you doing with the resources that God has given you that are under your control? And in verses 1 through 3, he's saying, weep and wail. How? Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. This is not a happy moment. Up until now, James has been giving uh, family concern to his brothers and sisters in Christ, saying, guys, you've got to remember, be faithful, that your, your faith is displayed through your actions and the way that you live your lives, the way that you speak. And all of a sudden he's saying, no, 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 if you're placing your hope and your stuff and your wealth and the things that you've accumulated, woe unto you. Warning, because bad things are coming. Everything will be destroyed. Your riches will rot. Your garments will be moth-eaten. Your gold and silver will corrode. Everything that you are placing your hope in, if you are placing your hope in your stuff, one day will be destroyed. And it sounds a lot like Jesus in Luke chapter 6 where Jesus says, But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. If this is where your hope is and your fulfillment in the things that you have now, warning, woe, because it will not last. It will not satisfy and it will not fulfill that hope. And he goes into his first indictment against the, this, this rich population that are placing their hope in their stuff. In ver at the end of verse 3, he says, you have laid up treasure in the last days. And so the problem isn't their wealth. It's not the fact that they're wealthy or that successful. It's the fact that they're hoarding their wealth, that they're accumulating all this stuff, and that they're just sitting on it. They're clutching it tightly and not doing anything with it. Their hope is in the stuff that they're getting 
He moves on quickly to the second indictment. He says, Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. He's saying, uh, you've, you've hired these people. Because remember, at this time, this was a highly agricultural society. In fact, at this time, there were a lot of, of landowners, or smaller landowners, that were bought out by wealthy farmers. And so they, in order to, to survive, to feed themselves, to feed their families, they had to work for these larger landowners to earn their wages. And he's saying, you've hired these people and you've lied to them and you've cheated them and you are not paying them what they deserve. You're withholding proper payment and they're crying out to God and He has heard them. Throughout the Old Testament, there are laws uh, given to God's people to take care of, of your workers, but especially to pay people an honest wage. And, and for example, there's, uh, I'm not going to read all of these, but in Deuteronomy 24 and Leviticus 19 and Malachi 3, go back and, and read through these chapters and you'll see the compassion that God has for those who labor and work and toil. And it's so important to God that he says, you have to pay them an honest wage for them to survive. In fact, in Malachi chapter 3, verse 5, it's so intense that God is actually comparing not paying an honest wage. He puts that on par with the people that are neglecting the orphans and the widows. That God is so concerned for caring for those who need help that paying an honest wage is the same as caring for the orphan and the widow. This is an important, uh, passionate uh, aspect of caring for God's people. And God has heard the cries of those who are suffering. He goes on in the next verse, in, in verse 5. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. This third indictment is actually uh, not a separate issue, but it's an, it's an intensific, intensification of the first issue that they were accumulating and hoarding all this wealth, and now he's saying you've taken that accumulation and you're living in self-indulgence to the point where you are, you are like a, a calf being fattened up for slaughter. That you don't even care for others, you're just consuming and caring only for yourself in such a way that you're good for nothing but slaughter. There's no concern for other people. There, there's uh, uh, no... Uh, and. I I don't want this to come across wrong. There's no distribution of that wealth. I'm not trying to sound socialist in that, but it's the fact that they're taking all of their riches and they're not doing anything with it. They're just trying to gain more and more. And so everyone around them is gaining less and less. And he's saying, you are living in such a a self-indulgent manner that you are a calf fattened for the slaughter. We live in a culture where we idolize celebrities, entertainers, movie stars, pop stars, uh, uh, whatever sports ball player or team you, you pursue. Uh, uh, we, 
we get fascinated with these, these tales of, of these extravagant riches. And in the 80s, I remember as a kid, like there, there was that show, uh, Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous, like where the entire show was just, let's go through this rich person's home and look at all their stuff. That was the whole point of this. And as a tech guy, I, my, my mind immediately goes to, to people like Bill Gates and, and, uh, and Steve Jobs. I, I almost forgot his name for a second there, but Bill Gates has had such a history of, of using and abusing people, just eating smaller companies up and spitting them out, where he is now trying to take his wealth and give it away to charities uh, and it, it feels like he's trying to atone for all the horrible things that he has done over the decades. I look at Steve Jobs, and when he died in 2011, his estimated net worth was $10.2 billion. And what did it get him? He's still dead. I once heard a, a, a song where, and, and the, this lyric still just blows my mind every time I hear the song, but the, the lyric says, the richest dead man is still just dead. You can spend your life chasing after wealth and, and accumulating and getting more and more, but it doesn't fulfill, it doesn't give hope because you too will one day die And your wealth means nothing in the face of death. And the fourth indictment, again, another intensification in verse 6. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Because in that culture, to deny a laborer their wage, most people worked in such a way that They needed their daily wages just to provide food for that day. And so to deny a laborer their wages, in Jewish custom, you were condemning that person to, to, to death. You were guilty of murder by withholding an honest payment. Reminds me of, of Matthew chapter 6, where Jesus warns about Do not store up your treasures on this earth where moth and rust will destroy. These these people, these uh, these rich people that James can't even call his brothers in Christ, he's echoing Jesus. And he's, he's warning against hoarding. And he's warning about withholding honest payment. To the point of saying you have become self-indulgent and that you're guilty of condemnation to murder. And the Lord hears the cries of the oppressed. And we read this, and it's easy to look and to point fingers and say, look how bad they were. Look at those things that they are doing. But James takes that mirror that I had mentioned earlier and reflects it back on your own heart. And he says, but what are you doing with the resources that God has given you? You might not be condemning people to murder. But what are you doing with the things that God has given you and entrusted to you under your control? 
I was reading the other day that uh, 80% of the world, not America, 80% of the world lives on less than $10 a day. And we go and we drop that at McDonald's or Starbucks like it's nothing. More than one-third of the world's population lives on less than $2 a day. That won't even buy you a drink at Starbucks. And especially now that we're after Thanksgiving and Christmas is approaching, this one's going to hurt a little bit. Americans spend roughly $465 billion a year on Christmas. Presents and stuff and decorations and everything else. As a nation, we spend $465 billion a year on Christmas. And that's more than the gross domestic product of some nations. Now, I'm not saying that you have to be a good Christian, that you have to go and get rid of everything that you have and go and live a life of poverty in, in some small country. And I, I'm not saying that. But what I am saying, I, I just want you to ask the question, what are you doing with the resources that you have? Are you sitting on it and hoarding it and just accumulating wealth and stuff for yourself and placing your hope in the things that you have? You can't save the entire world. But what impact are you making with the resources that God has given you? And then James switches again. And he goes from looking at the resources under your control and he asks, what are you doing with the reality outside of your control? And he says in verse 7, be patient therefore, brothers. Until the, see, he's back to the brothers now. He's, he's, he's liking them again. And he says, until the coming of the Lord, see how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and the late rains. You also, be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. And he goes and he's, 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 he's pointing this agricultural society and he gives them uh, a metaphor that they recognize. He says, look at the farmer. He has no control over the weather whatsoever, but he waits patiently for God to provide the rains and the proper weather to, to provide uh, nourishment and growth to these crops. And he's saying, just like that farmer, be patient. Don't go out, don't rush out and try to accumulate everything by your own power. Be patient and wait for the Lord to provide. In fact, the, the first thing that popped in my mind as I was reading this was uh, uh, Psalm 46. And if you actually read through the entirety of Psalm 46, uh, it's very much a, uh, I like to call it a, a battle psalm. Um, but it, it, it's a time, or it's a psalm for God's people in times of chaos and strife when it feels like they are under attack, either literal or metaphorical, emotional, spiritual, whatever. But it starts with, uh, in Psalm 46.1, it says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, 
though the mountains tremble at its swelling. And I want you to think for a moment. Think back to the last time where life itself felt like it was outside of your control. And you shouldn't have to think that hard because that's pretty much every day. But isn't that the way that it feels sometimes? When the car breaks down again or uh, you forgot to pay that bill and all of a sudden there's that, the, 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 the late balance fee that they, they tack onto it and, and so you're wondering, how am I even going to pay this and the next bill that's coming out next week? Or, <coughs> sorry, or when it's just uh, the sickness, especially this time of year, when there's that sickness that just goes through everyone in the family and then as a parent, you're sick and then your kids are sick but you're too sick to take care of them and it's just like, what am I going to do? And everything feels like it's working against me. This is the way that it feels. The earth is given way. The mountains are moved into the heart of the sea. The waters roar and foam and the mountains are trembling. And the psalmist says that God is a refuge and strength and very present help in trouble. And the psalm closes in verses 10-11 and he says, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. The psalmist is saying, When your life feels like it's falling apart and you're under attack and you have nothing else to hope in or trust in, that God is your refuge and your strength to the point where you can stop and be still. You don't have to do. You don't have to continually try to make all of these outside circumstances better. Be still and know that God is is God to stop and rest and trust in His provision and protection. The next verse seems a little out of place. It says, Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. That seems a little out of place, but think, when we grumble When you and I grumble about another person or a situation in life, isn't that grumbling just another form of impatience? That we are not patient enough to wait for a proper resolve to a conflict or we are not patient enough to wait for justice to be served in some manner? That your grumbling is actually a sign of impatience and not trusting and God's timing, and provision, and care. And then James says, look at the farmers, now look at the prophets. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. These prophets were called to to proclaim the glories and the mystery and the gospel of the living God. And oftentimes, they were called to to give these uh, proclamations to unrepentant nations. And sometimes they were just flat out ignored. Sometimes they were chased down and persecuted for pointing people back to the living covenant God. And yet, 
these prophets suffered and persevered because they patiently trusted in the name of the Lord. And then again, he goes from farmers to prophets to Job. And I don't know if, you've, if you're that familiar with your Old Testament. I highly recommend the book of Job, especially in the midst of struggle and heartache because it will get to the core of, of, of your hope and your trust every time. Um, but in verse 11, he says, Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. If you're not familiar with, with Job's life story, that he was a wealthy landowner, that he had all the, this land and, and a huge family and all these things, and one day Satan approaches God and says, that I can take away someone's stuff and make them turn against you. And God says, all right, you got my boy Job. He's mine no matter what you do to him. So he loses everything. He loses his crops. He loses his home. He loses his children. And Job remains faithful and steadfast. And then Satan goes back and takes away his health and he has boils and sores and, and just, it's, it's nasty if you actually read through. It's very descriptive and not pleasant. But Satan has taken away his health and Job remains faithful. He struggles, he questions, but he stays faithful. In fact, there's an, uh, a theologian named William Barclay that says, Job's, talking about Job's story, Job's is no groveling, passive, unquestioning submission. Job struggled and questioned, and sometimes even defied, but the flame of faith was never extinguished in his heart. And so James is saying, look at Job, who lost everything. His family, and his home, and his income, and his health, and he remained faithful to God. And because of that faithfulness, he was rewarded with far more than he even had in the first place. And James is saying, look at these farmers, look at these prophets, look at Job, and then look at the contrast. Because James goes from the destructive self-indulgence of these rich people who he cannot even call brothers anymore. And he says, look at the faithful patience of these farmers and prophets in Job. You've got one group that is trying to, to place their hope in hoarding and accumulating wealth and just sitting on their fulfillment now. And he contrasts that with waiting patiently for the blessing of the Lord. That when your reality is out of your control, do not be like the unfaithful but to be like the faithful and to be patient. That when your world is falling apart all around you, when you cannot control the reality of the world around you, is your hope in what you can do and the things that you hold on to? Or is your hope in the one who controls all those things? And then lastly, James looks at the, at the heart and he says, what do you do with the reactions that you control? Verse 12 says, but above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. 
Now James, being the half-brother of Jesus, often echoes uh, Jesus in his letter. And once again, he's, he's almost straight up copying Jesus word for word uh, from Jesus' uh, Sermon on the Mount back in chapter 5. In verses 34 through 37, Jesus Himself, the Son of God, says, But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is a footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great King. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. And he's driving to the honesty and the integrity of the believer themselves. It said that faith that perseveres is trustworthy in speech. Do not swear by these outside things because you have no control over that. You have no control over heaven or by earth. You have no control over these things that are outside of you. And so do not swear by these things because you have no power over them. But let your faithfulness be known in such a way that your yes is yes and your no is no. And you cannot place your hope in these outside things. You cannot place your hope in the things that you can do or the things that you can swear by. Or you can't even place your own hope in your own word. Because there will come a day where you will let someone down. And there will come a day where someone else will let you down. And you cannot place your hope and your stuff or your own perseverance. You can't place your hope in your own word. But I would, I would beg of you, please place your hope and your trust in the one who gave his word and kept his word. That this God who promised a deliverer And came through on His promise. This God that gave promises and prophecies of the the Deliverer to come. And all of those are fulfilled in the birth and life and person and work of Jesus Christ. That this Jesus, God in the flesh, lived a sinless life. And died on a cross according to prophecy. Yet another promise fulfilled. And rose again as He said He would. Another promise fulfilled. And He's promised to come again. And He promises to give give new life and eternal life to those who follow Him. To those who turn from their selfishness and their self-indulgence and their sin and say, I cannot do this on my own. I need You. To those people Jesus promises eternal life and hope. And so I have to ask, will you turn from the fleeting wealth of this world that will not satisfy, that does not give hope, and like all things will rot and fade away? Will you wait patiently for the Lord? The one who promises that He will come again. The one that promises that He will give eternal life. And the one who has never broken a promise that He has given. Will you? Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You. Uh, as so fitting 
this Sunday after Thanksgiving, we come to you with our thanks, uh, not just uh, in mere words, but God, with the realization that we cannot do this on our own, that we far too easily and too quickly place our hope in our things or our own actions or the things that we can say and do. And we take our hope away from You and we put it in our own things that we can see and touch. And God, we confess those things and we say, God, we want to believe. Help us in our unbelief. Help us to turn away from these things that will not satisfy and will not give hope and will not give life. And let us place our hope in You alone, in Christ alone. Let us turn from our selfish indulgence and trust and hope in Him. We pray all these things in His mighty and victorious and beautiful name. Amen.